0: You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network.
1: Hi folks, and welcome to episode 112 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for January 2023. Hey, I said it right. Go me. Um, this is a solo show this month, Um, and it's the first of at least a two-parter. I figured out how I'm going to do the second part. So basically, I've been reading a lot of stuff, you know, on various tech sites I follow and so forth, and, you know, listening to podcasts, and a theme that has come up again and again and again in everyone's year-in-review shows, whether it be for tech stuff or whether it be for science stuff has been the explosion in something called generative AI in 2022. I think that is the biggest tech story of the year, is that we now have AI that can be creative, that can make things out of whole cloth, for want of a better description. So I've been thinking a lot about AI, how it applies to photography. And so I thought it would make a good topic. And as I sat down to write the show notes, I realised that if we're going to do this rather large topic, does this, then it needs to be at least a two-parter. So this month, we're just going to talk about what AI is and what it does, and then the absolute plethora of questions it raises. That's for next time. And at this stage, I haven't quite decided how to do next time. Do I want to find a, you know, a specialist and try getting arranged an interview. Do I want to get together a panel of a couple of people? Do I maybe want to give my own thoughts first and maybe do a part three, which is a panel. I, as I say, I haven't decided. Uh, if anyone has any suggestions, you can, um, you know, lessastalk.ie and you'll find the contact button there for a start, uh, or you can tweet me um, at LTPod. If you have a suggestion for who might be good to interview or talk to or whether you think a panel will be better than an interview, will be better than me, you know, any thoughts you have, actually, I would be very interested to hear them because this is is a big topic. There's a lot to digest here. But this month we're going to do the easy part, which is just the computer science. So I I had to blow the dust a little bit off my memory of my computer science degree for this one. Um, And I had to do a lot of catch up reading. Um, But what was kind of interesting is just how far we've come since I took a course in AI as an elective in the final year of my degree back in 19, no, 2001-ish. Yeah, let's say 2001. Um, Because I graduated September 12, 2001. So it was probably a second semester, course. So let's say either the very, very end of 2000 or the start of 2001. Anyway. At that stage, it was a fourth-year course, it was an elective, and it was given by someone working in the field, which was always the way in many University with the fourth-year electives, so it was pretty cutting-edge. And we have come an awful long way since what I learned all those years ago, which is kind of cool. So let's let's start by breaking down the various terms. So AI is artificial intelligence. So what is it? Well, it's an extremely broad umbrella term. And I like to think of it as basically, if computers do anything that looks like thinking is part of AI. Now, the absolute holy grail in terms of AI is something called general AI, which is a single system that can think in all the ways humans can across all our different fields of knowledge. So a general AI could understand and comprehend language and sound and still and moving images just like we humans can. It could build up a complex understanding of concepts and the relationships between them by extracting information from the world. And then it could reason and extrapolate from its understanding to get the new understandings and to, you know, to really get things, right? So it could arrive at new wisdom based on the learning it's already done. And it could also leverage everything it's learned to be genuinely original and creative. Now, if you think that sounds like a heck of a lot to pull off, you would be absolutely right. And there's a long running joke in AI um, that general AI is to computer science as cold fusion is to physics. 30 years away always has been and probably always will be. But hey, we keep striving towards it. And what we have been doing, so general AI remains 30 years away probably always will. But what we've been doing instead as a field, I say we as if I'm still a computer scientist, uh, this is a an IT professional, very different thing. Um, but anyway, we as humanity, what we have been striving towards, what we've been making Im- immense progress towards is special purpose AIs. So you build a machine to do a specific thing in a specific field. And that's proved very promising. So we're going to break down the field into three broad categories and talk about how they apply to photography. So we're kind of going to do it in chronological order in terms of when it arrived in our photo apps. And so the first thing that arrived for us was something we call classifiers. Then we moved on to processors and this and last year in 2022, we moved on to generative AIs. But before we move on to classifiers, processors, generative AIs and stuff, I want to take a step back and get some more terminology straight in our head. So another term you've probably seen floating around a lot is machine learning or ML. And I think people sometimes think that it's synonymous with AI, but it's not. So machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. But it's, you know, so all machine learning is artificial intelligence, but not all artificial intelligence is machine learning. And to understand what machine learning is, I'm actually going to take us back in time a little bit, and I'm going to start before ML. So back in the 70s, when we started to really try to get to AI from our computers, one of the, the first avenues we explored, uh, again, I keep saying we as if I'm still computer scientist. anyway, one of the first avenues we explored was something that we call an expert system. And the idea was that if you build up a whole bunch of deeply nested if statements, you can end up with a computer able to make sensible decisions about things. So you would train the computer to know things by giving it this deep tree of questions. And that's actually something we had an analogy to in the real world for certainly my childhood. So when I learned to identify flowers and plants and birds and bees and stuff I had a bunch of tiny little pocket guides that would fit in your pocket and the first page of the guide would be a question you know if it say it was the one for trees or something is it a broadleaf tree or is it a conifer tree if broadleaf go to page whatever and you'd find another question there if broadleaf go to page something else and then the next question would ask you you know a few more options and after an amount of questions you would be the redirect you'd land at would be the description of the species that you were looking at. And that is a paper version of an expert system. It's just a deeply nested set of questions that plops you out at an answer. And expert systems are not useless. And um, they, you know, they are they are helpful,
0: but they're not actually they don't give us anything
1: new. They give us a quicker way to arrive at the stuff we already knew how to do, but they don't actually give the computer any sort of spark of, frankly, intelligence. They're not intelligent. And that whole effort just it was like, okay, well, this is a speed increase, but this isn't actually a fundamentally new paradigm of any sort. It's kind of a dead end, really, in terms of AI. So this is where machine learning comes out of. So the next approach, if we can't just, Model knowledge is a series of nested questions. Maybe the idea of us trying to explicitly teach the computer is what's wrong. Maybe we can't program intelligence because we actually can't describe intelligence ourselves. Maybe what we need to do is not teach the computer things, but teach the computer to learn things. So you add in that level of indirection where the computer teaches itself. So you teach the computer to teach itself. And that very broad field is called machine learning. Another term you'll have heard that has been horribly abused is neural networks or neural nets or artificial neural nets or ANNs. And unfortunately, they have become somewhat interchangeable. So just like machine learning is in many people's minds interchangeable with with AI, which is wrong, because machine learning is a subset of AI, the same has begun to happen thanks to some terrible marketing bump by people like Apple and stuff. People are conflating or are starting to consider artificial neural networks or neural nets and machine learning to be synonymous with each other. And again, that's not true for the very same reason. All neural nets are, or sorry, all artificial neural nets. I'm just going to call them neural nets. Um, but you know, what I mean artificial neural nets, not the ones in actual heads. All neural nets are machine learning but not all machine learning is implemented as neural nets. Neural nets is just a technique for machine learning. So again, you have AI contains machine learning, contains neural nets. But again, there's more to machine learning than neural nets, and there's more to AI than machine learning. So if I want to think of a mental image of a neural net, because they really were based on our brains. So in our brains, we have a whole bunch of neurons which are connected to each other by synapses, and those synapses can amplify or suppress signals And information goes in one side of a neural net, ripples through all the different connections, and pops out the other side as a transformed value. And that is how our brains work. And that can be implemented in software by having a bunch of nodes, which we will just call artificial neurons. They're just just nodes. And those nodes are then interconnected to each other with connections, which are basically artificial synapses. And each of those connections, As a weighting, it's basically, you know, so you you apply a signal to one side of your artificial neural network to a bunch of basically input virtual leads and they lead to a bunch of nodes and then you have many, many more nodes and then you have a bunch of nodes in the output and between the input nodes and the output nodes, you have this sea of connections, this network, this web of connected nodes and each connection has a weighting which is basically how much do I multiply the signal by to get to the next node. And you let the signal ripple through this big interconnected series of nodes. And so you have an input signal on one side and an output signal on the other. And the weightings of those different connections will transform the input signal to the output signal. And you program, which I'm using air quotes you can't see, you program the neural network by tweaking the weightings on the connections. So a neural network like this The way it does its work is with those weightings and you use various algorithms to teach the computer to tweak the weightings itself so that its inputs, so so that its outputs come into line with what you want. So you basically, you give the computer a bunch of training data that says, this is what should happen. Uh, But, you know, uh, training data contains inputs and expected outputs or inputs and some sort of fitness function to tell how well or how poorly the neural network is doing at the task you want it to do. And you let the computer over, you know, millions and millions and millions of iterations, because computers are great at doing doggy work over and over and over and over again, you let it continuously tweak its own weightings until the outputs come into line with the expectations. So either you're optimizing towards some sort of fitness function, or you're actually getting okay. Well, I'm. This is a picture of a cat. The answer I'm supposed to get out the other side is cat. Until I actually get cat out, I'm going to keep training myself. And so the computer is teaching itself. Now, this is very powerful. Right. So signal comes in, magic happens, new signal comes out, and the computer has taught itself how to transform the two. So we haven't had to figure out how to recognize the cat. The computer has figured it out. But the representation of the process, is nothing more than a collection of numbers. It is the weightings on each connection in the neural net. So it's just a grid of numbers. So the program is an utterly, completely unintelligible grid of numbers. So when someone says, how can, you know, S lady or A lady not know X? We actually can't know how they can't know. because when there's neural networks involved, we don't actually
0: know what the computer has learned. We can't interrogate its programming in inverted commas
1: because it's just a list of numbers that have no meaning to us. They, only, they, just, they just work. Now, a collection of these weights. So you have a particular neural net which we're going to have a shape, right? The shape of a neural network is determined by what nodes there are And what connections there are. So if you take a specific neural net and you take a collection of weightings for that neural net, you have what we call a model. And if you load that model into any other neural net that's the same shape, it will behave in the same way and do the same thing. So when you hear things like, you know, Tesla are pushing out an updated model for their full self-driving, what they're doing is they're just sending a collection of weightings to the neural net in the car. And what has happened is that Tesla has spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours on a supercomputer, feeding it in lots and lots of videos and things. And the neural net, basically Tesla's supercomputers have been training a neural net to get ever and ever better at driving. And the end result is a bunch of weights. And those bunch of weights are what then come down as your software update. So as the Tesla gets better trained... We're just getting updated list of magic numbers. But we call it a model. Now there's a little more to it than that, but anyway,
0: we'll, we'll get there. So please stick a pin in the fact
1: that machine machine learning of this type, neural networks, which is really, really, really popular. Stick a pin in the fact that we don't know how it works. That's going to become very important when we start to discuss the implications and the the, the moral questions and stuff that AI raises. We don't know how it works. We can measure its effect, but we don't know how it works. Now, the other very, very important thing that I need to stick a pin in for next time is that I've just made it sound easy. When you have some training data, you run it through an algorithm and you get a trained neural network. Simples. Well, it's not simples. Not even slightly simple. Because the quality of your training data will have a spectacular effect on the action of the trained neural network. And there's a computer science truism that is very strongly in focus here. Garbage in results in garbage out. So because we don't actually know what a neural network has learned, the quality of the learning entirely depends really on the quality of our input data and the algorithm. But if you give a neural network bad learning data, no matter how good your algorithm is, you're going to get a bad neural network out. So we don't know what a neural net has learned. So as machine learning is happening, we don't actually know what it's learned. So has it learned a coincidence that is in your training set, but not in the real world? Or has it learned a thing you wanted it to learn? Has your training data appropriately captured the right level of abstraction? That what the neural net is training itself is the abstract concept and not some accidental specific in your training set. Then you also have a wonderful problem that you can overtrain a neural network. So there's a this very it's a real art because if you don't train your neural network enough, it will just be stupid. It will do dumb things. If you train it too much, it becomes stupid again. Because you go beyond training it for the abstract concept you're trying to train it. And you then effectively train it to memorize your training set and it becomes less and less good at real world stuff as it becomes more and more focused on simply memorizing the training set so it's actually really bloody hard and ai can do spectacularly stupid things when the real world presents it something not properly covered in the training set so there was a recent news story where a Tesla got struck by an airplane when the owner summoned it across a runway in a small airport. And Tesla, had, you know, the Tesla, its neural network had never seen an airplane. Knew about cyclists, and cars and trucks. Airplanes, none of the training set. Who would have thought to train a Tesla to recognize an airplane? So it drove straight into
0: it. Oopsie. Right. Very, very important. So it's again, yeah. darn bloody difficult so
1: the first time we would have seen ai in actually okay before we get to the first time so the last thing i just want to say in this sort of general topic is that we have now in the last half decade or so maybe slightly longer we have moved from representing neural nets in software so when i was studying uh, ai we were writing programs to simulate the concept of a neural network. You know, you'd make a bunch of variables as an array to represent your nodes. And then you'd have another bunch of arrays to represent the various connections. And you, you basically, you do, you'd model it all as if it was like a flight sim, right? it's a mathematical representation of the neural network. And you were doing it all in software. Well, software is slower than hardware. That is why we have graphics cards. So The mathematics in a graphics card can be entirely done in software, but you can do it faster with dedicated circuits on silicon chips. We have now moved on to the point where we have dedicated circuits on silicon chips for representing neural networks. The marketing fluff is things like Apple's neural engine. When Apple says that our new A-whatever processor has eight neural engine cores, they are hardware artificial neural networks. So they're built right into the silicon. And like a graphics processor is really efficient at doing the graphics calculations, a neural engine is really efficient at doing machine learning through artificial neural networks. And that is how AI has become so powerful on even our portable phones. It's because we now have hardware implementations of neural networks right on the silicon in even our small, portable, pocketable devices, let alone our larger computers. Now, what makes me very cranky is that Apple used the term ML all over the place and what they mean is neural networks, and it's not just Apple. So when I see stuff like um, new versions of Pixelmator, they talk about ML this and ML that, but they're, they're neural nets, really. It's what they are, and they're using Apple's um, neural engine cores to do that work. We're available, or they're doing it in software if it's not available. So... I do wish we were a bit clearer on when we mean an artificial neural network and when we mean machine learning and so. But anyway, it is what it is. People now think ML is anonymous with neural nets. They probably shouldn't. Okay, so let's move on to AI in photography. So the first time we would have bumped into AI in our day-to-day photographic lives would have been when um, I think the first, first place I bumped into was when Aperture developed a new feature where it could recognize faces. And the same functionality soon followed for Lightroom. And the way it would work is that every time there was a photo with a face and a square box would appear over the face and it would ask you, who's this? And you would tell it that that's Bob. And then as you're going through more photographs, it would say, is this Bob too? And you'd say, yeah, it's Bob too. And it would build up a little smart album of pictures of, you know, Bob and Joe and Alice and so on and so forth. And we laughed as it decided that Bob would look like our cat or rather than our cat looked like Bob and so on and so forth. But that is AI going on there. That is an early example of
0: a classifier. And even that very
1: basic technology is really complicated. So the reason it took so long for that to arrive into our computers, you know, it didn't arrive until like a decade and a half ago or so, is because it's actually a big computer science problem. So just that simple face recognition stuff with all of its many, many foibles and all of its many, many flaws, that's actually, I mean, the actual implementation, you you could drill down even more deeply than I'm going to, but you can abstract it to a minimum of three layers. There's actually three separate layers of, you know, AI and computer science being applied to get to where we need to go. So the first layer is a very simple classifier, probably implemented as a neural network, We can't know that. We're not engineers inside Apple and Adobe, but it's it's definitely implemented with machine learning, probably in an artificial neural network. And it's a very basic classifier that just
0: finds faces. That's all it does. Just finds faces.
1: So layer one is find all the faces. Layer two then takes those faces, which you'll see, you can actually see where layer one finds a face because it'll draw a little box over the face when you hover over the photograph. So layer two's job is to take each of those boxes found by layer one and to extract some sort of fingerprint from that recognized face to capture its essence. And that was all done with ratios because ratios will stay constant, as uh, you know, as you're zoomed in and zoomed out and so forth, but so, right, actual measurements don't stay constant, but ratios do. So there was a bunch of math developed to find, okay, the ratio between, say, the distance of the eyes to the distance of the nose and these kind of, you know, non-variant ratios. And you build a way of representing a face as one or two numbers. And then you store those numbers into some sort of either a one-dimensional, two-dimensional, or three-dimensional search space. And then your third layer looks at all of the points that effectively have just been plopped into this one, two, or three-dimensional search space. I'm not sure how many numbers uh, they collapse the the, the face down to, but they collapse the face down to an amount of numbers, so you can plot them on a coordinate system. And then the third layer of this process was to to look at the, the plot of all the different faces and to try and find little clusters, right? Because each fingerprint is going to be an approximation. And so what you would expect is that inside your, your mapped out search space, you'd find little clusters of points. And then you have another algorithm that goes around looking for clusters, grouping them together, and then basically asking you to confirm whether or not the guess was right. And as you're confirming stuff, the fuzziness of each of the measurements can be sort of honed down a bit, And so the value of, right, so Bob is approximately these three numbers. Well, you can start to hone in on exactly, exactly what Bob is. And you can get better at telling Bob from not Bob in the cloud of points. And all of that went into that simple feature, which we scoffed at how dumb it often was. That's already, that's a lot of computer science going on. And so now imagine... Just how much computer science must be going on when you shout at the air in your house and the S lady or the A lady or the the G lady. And actually, I don't know if Google says male or female. Anyway, when you're a virtual assistant, you know, you shout at your virtual assistant to do something. The fact that it ever does anything is actually what's amazing. The fact that it often does something really stupid probably isn't amazing if you're a computer scientist. So again, if you start to think of how many layers must there be, well, the first thing is you need to have a layer that can just Hear noise and turn it into words. And then you need to have a layer that can take those words and extract their meaning from those words, right? Which is really bloody difficult, right? Language models are not at all easy. And then you take that language model and then you send it off to the cloud to some sort of computerized representation of knowledge. And you try to extract the answer to the question you managed to get from your language model to match that to one of the possible answers in your gigantic interconnected knowledge base that you somehow manage to represent. And then you throw that back into another language model whose job it is to take the data of, you know, it is 42 degrees Celsius. So I translate that back into some words, some text, and you throw it through another layer to translate that into sounds. And then you send that across the internet to the speaker. And all of that happens in a second or two. It's, really impressive computer science, frankly. It it is absolutely amazing what even our dumb smart speakers can do. Okay, so getting back to photography here. So our first classifiers were facial recognition. And actually the classifier itself, so the first layer of what I described, is actually a very simplistic classifier. It basically knew face or not face. Well, we've now moved on to the point where our classifiers aren't, you know, one or zero. Our classifiers are now, Again, they're almost certainly layered, um, but our classifiers are now able to tell us you know, to detect, well, this photograph contains three people, a flower, a tree and a dog. So it's you know, the, it, able to classify way more classes of things. And what's almost certainly happening is that the first layer of that AR, of that classifier is find the subject in the photo. And then each of those subjects gets passed to a second layer, which is figure out what broad category of thing this subject is. And then depending on what it finds, it may have another layer to dig deeper. So we know now that the very latest versions of the Apple Photos app can actually give you not just this is a flower, but this is a crocus or this is a daffodil or whatever. So that's almost certainly another layer. So when the middle layer finds flower, it then gets handed to the next layer to see if we can't refine flower down to a specific Flower and so on and so forth. So we also have text recognition thrown in as part of our classifiers these days. So we have gotten very good at training classifiers. So that is definitely something where we've advanced an awful, awful lot is, is classifiers. So you can now do a meaningful text based search of your photos library in your iPhone or your Google phone or whatever, because our classifiers are good enough to recognize enough things in the image that if you say, Hey, assistant name, find me all of my photos of trees or all of my photos of houses or all of my photos of cars or whatever. It will actually do a decent job of it because the classifiers are good enough to start finding the information in our photographs. Okay, so the next step after we got classifiers, and we're continuing to improve classifiers, but the next thing that arrived in our photographic worlds were machine learning image processing. So... This is much more like the traditional way you would use a neural network. So you get the photograph comes off the sensor. It gets handed into one side of an artificial neural network. That neural network has been trained to make photos nicer. So we've used some sort of, in this case, you're not saying the answer is yes or no. You're saying to the machine learning as it's training itself you've given it a fitness function where it can basically evaluate, is this image likely to be pleasing to humans? And you're probably looking for a certain level of contrast. You're looking for a certain average brightness. Basically you're, you're trying to optimize some features that in on average make photographs nicer. And you're training the neural network to take input images and bring them, make them nicer. Right. Really that's what you're doing. Right. So this is where the magic wand button would have started as was just, you, you click on it and it, does this right it runs it through the neural network has been trained to make photos nicer and the photo gets nicer initially the magic wand really was just you know we take an input image and we take an output image and how it does it is a black box but in modern iphones when you click the magic wand button you don't get an atomic change that you either accept or reject what you actually get is that all of the sliders move and so what apple have done is they have changed what it is they've trained the neural network to do in order to optimize the image. So instead of simply transforming the pixels, like the first implementation did, they've now trained their neural network to move the sliders about in order to produce more pleasing images. And this is kind of an interesting thing because it's slightly, it doesn't tell us how it figured out that the photo needed to be brighter, but it does at least show us that it's figured out that what's needed are these settings instead of just these pixels so it's a little bit less opaque We still don't really understand this core reasoning but it's at least giving us a little bit more of an idea what it's up to and the great thing of course is that when the ai optimizes slider positions rather than just optimizing raw pixels well that means that we can fine-tune the ai's work and so we end up in a much more cooperative situation like the old magic wand button was a one and done if you like it you like it if you don't undo and have a go yourself Well, the new AI, you know, the new magic wand button is way more powerful because it basically acts as a first approximation and then we can add our artistic feeling on top of that. So yes, technically speaking, the white balance should be here because that's going to give us a neutral color. But you know something? I want this photograph to feel warm. So I'm going to nudge the temperature slider. Or, yeah, this is, technically speaking, the optimal contrast, but I want this image to be really punchy, so I'm going to knock that contrast up a bit. Or, yeah, this is an appropriate level of colour, but do you know something, I really want this image to pop, so I'm going to boost up the vibrance a little bit or whatever. Right? It's, it becomes a cooperation, which is a whole different kettle of fish, and again, something we definitely need to talk about in part two and or three. And then, so image processing, I I think. I mean, I don't think there's really all that much to say. Basically, you train neural networks to make images prettier. And we've gotten really good at that. And instead of it just doing pixel by pixel, we're now able to do it by settings rather than by pixels, which is kind of cool. Again, because Apple have its neural engine right on the chip, you can do powerful machine learning right on even small portable devices. It's just cool. Okay, so that then brings us to 2022. And like I said, this is a historic year in the history of AI because we now have mainstream availability of tools where you can type some text and the AI will build you an image to order that meets, to some extent, your description. There's so much going on here. So the amount of training and the amount of layers that must be going here is actually difficult for me to comprehend. Like, as a computer scientist who graduated quite a while ago now, I don't know what I don't know about how this works. It's, It's just deeply impressive to me that it works. And what's even more impressive than it just being a case of you say to the AI, you know, I want a picture with a car on a street with four trees in the background and a sunny day it'll have a go and then you can continue the conversation Mm, no actually change change that to a conifer tree or how about an oak or make the car blue or add a second car and you can continue to refine the image in a pretty real conversation so that concept of cooperating with the ai has Gone to an amazing level. And to say that this raises questions about photography is the understatement of the year. There is so much that comes about because we now have this generative AI. So classifiers raise some questions, we will definitely dig into.
0: Processing models, I'm not sure they have all that much
1: that'll, you know. Now that they move the sliders instead of just doing a magic thing on the image, they've just become our little helper. I'm not sure there's all that much controversy there, but classifiers is a lot for us to dig into actually, because they're potentially very dangerous. The processors are just useful little tools, and then the generative AI comes along, and that just changes the game completely. Now you could actually argue that we've been on the road towards generative AI for a while. Because I would argue that Content-aware fill, those kind of features that Adobe have been putting in for quite some years, they're kind of a halfway house between just image processing and generative AI. It's looking for similar things within the image to go and pop in there. But it is kind of generative, isn't it? Smart fill. So it's on the spectrum, I think, towards what we have now, which is just from a blank slate, build me an image from scratch, which is, as I say, impressive technologically. But it opens a lot of moral, ethical questions and also philosophical questions. I mean, I guess what I'll just preview the next episode by saying, by you know, ponder this: a generative AI. Like I've hear people saying, "Well, a photograph you make with Dolly or one of these generative AIs, that's not art
0: because the computer made it." Well, the question I always ask myself in these things is. If there were no human in the mix, could the computer have made it? The answer is no, because the prompt is as important as what comes
1: after the prompt. So those images coming out of Dali are cooperation between the human and the AI.
0: So how much of that final work
1: is the work of the AI? And how much of it is the work of the human? We can argue about a lot. But it's definitely not zero on either side. And you have a whole other moral issue. that uh, How did Dolly get to know what a tree looks like? Or the style of Picasso is? It ingested a whole bunch of images. and Does that mean that its output is
0: plagiarism? Those images were used without permission. Is
1: Dolly the world's biggest plagiarist? That's a difficult question. As I say, so much to get stuck into next time. Right? Even classifiers have a really, really dark side we need to be aware of. This whole garbage in, garbage out thing has spectacular societal implications. Uh, again, just a little preview of next time. If you use as your training data, your previous hiring data, and you use that to try to build a neutral hiring agent, you try to build an AI that that is neutral and not full of all those human biases, but you've trained it, and everything your organization did for the last 10 years. What have you done? You have fossilized and computerized all of your existing biases. And you have not made a a way of hiring people without bias. You have made a way of ensuring that your past biases stay with you forever. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, I'm describing what Amazon did and then very quickly abandoned. They tried to make hiring more inclusive by using AI they used their historical data as the training set and they trained a misogynistic hiring manager and they threw it away. So, and I think it was racist too, actually. Um, so there is an awful, awful, awful lot to dig into. You know, broad questions, deep fakes, where there's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so, so much for us to dig into in... The second and potentially the third part of this like I say I really haven't decided how I'm going to attack the massive sea of questions AI raises for photographers so thoughts very much appreciated Less-talk.ie, there's a contact button there at uh, ltpod on twitter Um, actually should probably also do my usual plugs at the end of the show uh if you would like to support the show please go to talk.ie where you will find in this case very detailed show notes normally let's talk photography my show notes are bullet points this is a full-on essay i wrote for this set of show notes so that's at less.talk.ie you will find buttons there for, to support the show i want to say a giant big thank you to anyone who has ever supported the show um you know there's a paypal button there are some affiliate links there is patreon subscription which is If you want to make sure the show continues to exist, the Patreon button is probably the most powerful because it gives me a monthly income for the podcast. So there are monthly bills for the podcast and there's monthly income from the podcast. And we are now at a stage where they are approximately equal to each other. And that's fantastic. That's where I want to be. I do not want to be forced to get sponsors. I want this show to be self-sustaining because listeners want to hear it, which means I don't have to have advertisers. I don't have to shill for people. I don't have You'd, you never have to wonder, is it my opinion? Because there are no advertisers for me to be thinking about in the back of my head. Um, and then the PayPal button is amazingly useful for when I need new hardware and software. I mean, so the monthly donations keep the monthly bills going, and the one-off donations help me do things like upgrade my microphone by the really nice new boom arm that is holding the microphone at the perfect height in front of my mouth right now. It's really pleasing to have a nice new boom arm here, which was entirely covered by the PayPal uh, donations. So again, Thank you very much, everyone who has ever supported the show and of course, you can also support the show simply by spreading the word if you tweet about it, uh blog about it, tell people about it in meetspace, you know mention it on Mastodon, wherever it is you're hanging out Facebook even share the news, share it with people you think would enjoy it, and that really helps the show because and I think the aim a lot of times is if you can get one percent of your listeners to support you, then you're doing great well bigger the number is the more people fall into the one percent right so just spreading the word actually does help the show to sustain itself which is cool okay i've blathered on for long enough um i really am serious when i say i'd love to hear your thoughts for how i attack part two and or three of this because it's such a big question Uh, but anyway let me know and i will talk to you next time and until then remember folks happy snapping
0: You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. And we are go. Go? Wait, go where?
0: The commercial guy. We're recording a commercial for the MyMac.com podcast.
1: Ah, so we're recording the podcast now. Well,
0: well, no, not now. At the moment, we're recording this commercial. So when do we go? Go where? I don't know. You started this whole go thing. The G-Men on the MyMac.com podcast. We have no idea what we'll say next.